Good morning. I always hate to preach the Sunday after our high school students uh, take the pulpit and have their opportunity to preach. Uh, Last week, 16 of our students were spread over all the services, and they all did such a spectacular job. I mean, there goes my job security, you know. But I guess nobody is irreplaceable. Well, anyway, this morning, let me read uh, two passages from the Bible that will guide us as we think about worship as a spectator sport. First, Mark 12, verse 30, where Jesus speaks about what is most important in life. When he is, when he is asked to define what is the most important commandment in all of Scripture, uh, Jesus quotes from a passage from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, and this is what he says. He says, Love the Lord your God with all your mind, all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And the second passage is from Hebrews chapter 13, verses 15 and 16. It describes what true worship is all about. The writer says, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. This is the word of God. Thanks be to him. Amen. Well, last weekend I had the uh, very good fortune to get invited to attend Game 7 of the semifinal playoff series between the New York Rangers and the Washington Capitals at Madison Square Gardens. That's professional ice hockey for those of you who are not sports fans. Uh, Madison Square Garden, I mean, it's just this, this awesome place. It's like, a, it's like a holy shrine to New York sports fans. I mean, just walking into the garden was electric. It was packed to the ceiling with fired-up fanatics. Our seats were just great, six rows off the ice. And from the moment we arrived, people were on their feet shouting and singing and, and stomping their feet. The music was pumping. The beer was flowing. Topped off with fireworks at the end when the Rangers won the game. I mean, it was a spectacle. And halfway through the game, I leaned over to my host and I said, you know, for many of these people, this is a religious experience. A religious experience. Now, in the cacophony of Madison Square Garden, I couldn't really explain what I meant by that. But it really fits into what we're talking about this morning in this message series about the importance of worship, because there is a huge difference between having a religious experience and the true worship of God that our hearts deeply desire. And this morning, I want to try and spell that out just a little bit. See, whenever you go to some big arena event a professional or college athletic event, a rock concert, a rave, even a Christian concert. The people who plan that event, their main purpose is to get you to feel something. To feel something. They want you to get your adrenaline pumping. They want to get your emotions engaged with what's going on up front, what's going on on the court or on the stage. And so they use all these artificial things like lights and music and songs and a a wide variety of stimuli to get you all jazzed up about what's going on. They want to get you into it. 
When there was a pause in the action at Madison Square Garden, they would show these short video clips up on the Jumbotron of famous actors trying to pump up the crowd, everybody from Liam Neeson to Danny DeVito, saying, come on, New York, let's make some noise. Now, I don't have a clue what Liam Neeson or Danny DeVito have to do with hockey. But they want to get you excited. They want you to to feel a rush. They want you to taste a thrill. Why? Well, because excitement leads to attachment. Attachment. When your feelings, when your emotions get energized, you, you sense that you become part of something. You feel you belong to something bigger than yourself. And that's what they're going for, attachment. You become a fan. You get attached to the team, attached to the band, attached to the cause. Whether it's a a Bruce Springsteen concert or a Rutgers football game, they want you to feel like you are part of the team, the event, the happening. You begin to feel like you are part of something bigger than yourself. And there's a place in the human heart that really needs that kind of attachment. There was an article in this week's Star Ledger that talked about this up-and-coming trend in techno music concerts called EDM, or electronic dance music. And there's a tour going on this summer called Dayglow. And the promoters are going all out to create this feeling of excitement and attachment for fans in, in some brand new ways, unexpected ways. And so they have these dancers and performers wandering throughout the crowd dressed in kind of bizarre Lady Gaga-style costumes to create kind of this surreal circus atmosphere. People on stage are shooting the crowd with glitter guns and and neon glowing paint so that everybody will glow under black light. The whole point is to create this kind of escapist fun in some new way because people are bored with what happened last year. They need a new, even more outrageous experience, an experience of excitement that leads to attachment so that the crowd will do one more thing. Excitement and attachment leads to a type of loyalty where the person wants to connect some piece of their identity with whatever they're experiencing there in that venue, whether it's a Mets game or a monster truck rally. And loyalty leads to buy-in. Buy-in. And I mean that literally. The event planners want the fans to buy stuff. And so the whole thing is designed to get to that point of buy-in. They want you to buy something. Tickets to the next event. T-shirts, jerseys, hats, coffee mugs. They want you to buy the music. They want you to buy the food. Some kind of memorabilia. Just buy something, anything that will tie you to that event so that you want to recreate that experience in the future. The real message is, New York, make some noise. No, it's New York, spend some money. That's really the message that they're trying to send. And people are happy to do it. I was happy to do it. People spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars on jerseys and backstage passes and everything. Loyalty leads to buy-in. And every time there's a band touring, like like Bon Jovi in New Jersey, whoever, the TV crews are always out there interviewing some of the fans outside the arena. And somebody will always say, yeah, this is my 29th concert. I've got every t-shirt. I've been to every one. I never miss one of these. That's what they're going for. That's buy-in. 
People who are seeking an experience, a feeling of excitement for a team, a band, a cause, for something that kind of jolts them out of their ordinary routine of life, makes them feel alive. And that leads to attachment, that leads to buy-in. And they will spend a lot of money to get that feeling. And this is a type of religious experience that is a shadow of what true worship ought to be. But this approach to religious experience has really infected our whole culture and the culture of the church. So that many church people, many churches, look at worship the exact same way they look at these other events. That the purpose of worship is to get the congregation to feel something and thereby to become attracted to the church. The expectation of the worshipers is that they should feel something. They should get something out of it. And the decline in worship attendance in most churches is due largely to the fact that people don't get the feeling that they're looking for. So they stop going. There's a real consumer mentality that's focused on self. It's a, it's a type of narcissism, a self-love. What's in it for me? The fact that there are problems in how people look at worship really isn't anything new. Much of the New Testament was written to help early Christians get straightened out a lot on the same issue. The tension between having a religious experience that's based on one's own feelings and true worship has always been there. We certainly see it throughout Scripture and church history. But it is really intensified in our day. One great example of this from the past comes from the writings of the 19th century Danish theologian Soren Kierkegaard, who was just brilliant in really his scathing critique of the government-sponsored churches of Western Europe, the Lutheran Church in Germany and the Scandinavian countries, the, the Church of England, the, the Scottish Presbyterians. All of them were dependent on the government for their funding, to, to pay their pastors, to pay to keep the, the buildings open. And that is never a good thing for the Church of Jesus Christ. All of them thought they had a monopoly that they counted on to keep them in business that they thought would never change. And all of them were just stone cold dead spiritually. Just dead in the water. They'd become wealthy religious institutions that were devoid of God's Holy Spirit. They were great at performing religious rituals, but not at connecting people with Christ. They could put on a good show, but none of it really helped people to worship God. And that's one of the reasons why to this day the church is so weak in Europe where you have these magnificent cathedrals with beautiful stained glass and empty of people and the Holy Spirit because they didn't listen to Kierkegaard. And there are a lot of parallels here with our own day. But Kierkegaard talked about how in true worship there is really just an audience of one. An audience of one. God himself, he pointed out the common misconception among Christians that it's the upfront people, you know, the, the pastors and the worship leaders, uh, the band members, the organists, the soloists, the drama team, the Bible readers, that they are the performers of worship. And the congregation is the audience. And that may be the, in many churches every Sunday. People like to sit back in their seats, fold their arms, and say, you know, bless me. 
entertain me. Put on a good show. Give me a good song. Give me an inspiring sermon. Help me to feel something. It's all about me getting something out of it. And this is a common attitude for our own entertainment-driven culture. Now, Kierkegaard used a concert hall to illustrate what he meant. I want you to think of a baseball game, a baseball stadium, because the entertain-me Christians look at worship as though the pastors and the people up front, they're the players on the team. They're the ones out on the turf. They're the ones on the baseball diamond chasing balls. God is like the coach or the manager of the team, and he's over there in the dugout. He tells the, the, the players, the pastors and the worship leaders, what to do. They are supposed to be in touch with the, court, the coach in order to get the plays right and to play a good game. But the congregation is the crowd in the stands who are there to watch the players do their thing. They're hoping to see a good game, hoping that maybe the manager will come out of the dugout every once in a while, wave his hat to the crowd and get all excited. But the congregation just watches the game. Maybe once in a while they bring a fan down onto the field for some special giveaway or promotional thing. But that's all designed just to kind of keep the good feelings going between the players on the field and the people in the stands so that there's more buy-in by the fans. Whatever makes them happy, that's what counts. Now Kierkegaard said for true worship, you've got to flip that over. The people in the congregation, they're the team. They're the players out on the turf swinging the bats and running the bases. They are to be the performers of worship. The worship leaders, the pastors and the music people, they are the coaches and the managers calling the plays and sending in the signals. They are really player coaches because they are part of the team as well. They are worshiping at the same time they are urging the ones in the congregation to do their best and to worship their hearts out. And God, God is the audience of one. He's the one fan in the stands who's watching it all play out. And he is the one that needs to be pleased with what happens down on the field, with what he witnesses, because we want and we need buy-in from him towards us. The verse that some of our high school seniors preached on last week was Romans 12, verse 1. It says, Therefore I say, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Worship is an offering that that we give to God, to our audience of one. It is something that we do for him, in front of him, on behalf of him. It's just that our our buildings are designed all wrong. They're designed like lecture halls, and so it creates this impression of passivity on the people who are sitting in the pews. Maybe we should kind of tear out all the pews and all, throw out all the chairs, rip up the carpet. Let's put down AstroTurf in our sanctuaries. Maybe we should stand up for the whole hour and run plays of, of praise and singing, of confession and intercession. Run plays when we give our money, when we read God's word, where we hear it expounded, and when we respond to it in our hearts. Those are active ways in which we are players and not just spectators. We offer ourselves in worship to this audience of one. 
The Apostle Paul was trying to coach the Romans Christians into worship, urging them to bring their A-game, to offer their bodies to God, to lay it all down for him. And that's what Jesus was saying in that passage that I read from Mark chapter 12. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. If Christians fully understood that worship is not something that is done for them, but that they are the players, that they are the active participants in the game, it would truly transform worship throughout our churches. Dr. Robert Weber of Wheaton College writes this, Worship calls for the involvement of our mind, our body, our soul. Worship demands nothing less than the complete, conscious, and deliberate participation of all the worshipers. You see, people are searching for a true encounter with God. We are designed to be in relationship with God. It is something our inmost spirits really crave, a connection to something larger than ourselves. But not just to any old thing, not to something like a sports team or a rock star. Those are sad substitutes for knowing our Creator. As the famous 17th century French mathematician Blaise Pascal once wrote, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God. The Creator made known to us through Jesus. We do need to encounter God. Worship is a two-way street, a two-way communication between God and His people. It's a dialogue of response. God reveals His presence. Our need for intimacy with God is met. We respond in thanksgiving and praise. God speaks through His Word. We're convicted of sin. We repent. God expends mercy through Jesus Christ. We respond in adoration and service in the world. Worship provides opportunity for God and God's people to express their mutual love for each other. Sally Morgenthaler writes it this way, In worship, we carry on an exchange of love with the God who is present, the God who speaks to us in the now, who has done and who is doing marvelous things. And it is in this supernatural exchange, this interaction between the God of Scripture and God's people, That is the primary component of Christian worship. And then we take the game out onto the street during the week where we live. The passage from Hebrews 13 says, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name, and do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. That means worship doesn't stop when we say the benediction. The sacrifice of praise is coupled with the sacrifice of service. We are giving ourselves in service to God throughout the week. To take God's good news in Christ and to live it, sharing our faith, helping those in need, caring for the poor. True worship isn't an hour-long event. It's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle. It is the way we live, serving Christ with our body, our mind, our soul, our strength. Unfortunately, one of the trends we see in a lot of contemporary worship circles across the country 
is that many kind of Christian worship leaders and pastors, they see themselves more like Christian entertainers rather than spiritual player coaches who lead people into the presence of God. In a sincere attempt, I think, to be relevant and to be attractive to spiritual seekers, worship can become a pawn to marketing strategies. Worship becomes less and less about having an intimate experience relationship with God and more about giving people a a wow kind of feeling, an event that is a subtle substitute for a real encounter with the living God. And then church just starts to mirror entertainment culture. Doing whatever works as though the job is just to fill seats. Worship becomes a show, and then what the church really believes starts to get a little fuzzy. It's more about you know, having a hipster pastor or worship leader you know, with jeans torn in just the right place, a zip front hoodie, and maybe a tattoo. I mean, if that's the way you really dress, that's fine. But if it's a look you're going for as a pastor or as a worship leader, because you think it'll make you look cool to the audience, folks, that's a real problem. I don't have a problem with pastors and worship leaders trying to be relevant, but they shouldn't do it because it's hip. They should do it because that's who they really are. Just mimicking the secular culture in an attempt to be relevant and cool just feeds this narcissistic consumerism and is the opposite of true worship. Now, don't get me wrong. I am all for contemporary styles of worship, lights and tech and video screens. I am all for that because in those, they are just the tools to serve this generation with the exact same purposes <coughs> excuse me, as candles and stained glass and the stations of the cross did during the Middle Ages. They serve to engage people visually. And there's nothing wrong with that. The way people experience worship changes over time and with culture. And there's nothing wrong with getting people excited in worship or having a feeling of God's presence, of being blessed, of being inspired, of being drawn in, or to have buy-in in a church. There's nothing wrong that should happen in worship. But those feelings, that experience, should always be a byproduct a byproduct of first offering oneself to the Lord in in sincere surrender through worship. The byproduct of worship, not the goal. J.I. Packer points this out in his book, Knowing Christianity, that when modern Christians can be affected by culture, (coughs) we seek experiences as an end in themselves, as if feeling something intensely is the same thing as encountering God. And that's where we get confused. He says, we are inclined to jump to the conclusion that the more intense an experience is, the more of God there must be in it. And by biblical standards, that is not so at all. If in worship you're going just to get a feeling, you're probably going to actually miss God. True worship has to do with people being transformed, people becoming more and more Christ-like. Feelings are important, but they have to be secondary. And I think our goal here at PCNP is to strike a balance to experience thoughtful worship that engages the head and the heart. Worship infused with scripture that's, that's, actually, that's accurately exposited. Worship that connects to people in a relevant way. True worship that leads people to have a desire for God. 
an ardent desire to be in God's presence, to listen to God's voice through the Word of God, to taste fully God's infinite goodness so that then we can serve Him throughout the week. A.W. Poser puts it this way in his classic book, The Pursuit of God. For it is not mere words that nourish the soul, but God himself. And unless and until the hearers find God in personal experience, they are not the better for having heard the word. Even the Bible is not an end in itself, to bring people to an, but a means to bring people to an intimate and satisfying knowledge of God, that they may enter into him, that they may delight in his presence, may taste and know the inner sweetness of the very God himself in the core and the center of their hearts. So let's worship God every Sunday with all our hearts, all our souls, all our minds, all our strength. Come on, church, let's make some noise. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you just for this time. Whether it's in quietness or whether it's in loud music, whatever experience we have, Lord, we know that you are what we are seeking. And we give you praise, Lord, that in this hour, you help us to reset the compass of our lives. Then it doesn't end when we say amen, but we carry our worship with us in expressions of the gospel throughout the week to our friends, our family, to living it with the poor and the oppressed, Lord, to sharing your good news with the world. Lord, thank you just for the opportunity to worship you this morning. We hope that you were pleased as our audience of one. For it's in your name we pray.